Disclaimer. Defamation is an intentional false statement, either written or spoken, that harms a person's reputation, decreases the respect, regard, or confidence in which a person is held. Libel is anything defaming that appears in writing. Slander is anything defaming that is spoken. All person or persons deceased are subject. The Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast is an investigation into the death of Otis Slim Merritt. We strive to be truthful in all statements made. All speculation on our behalf will be noted. Episode 9, Rally Around the Family. Now Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be restless wanderer on the earth. Genesis 4, 8 through 12. What have you done? What have you done? Wherever Slim was shot, whatever street he was shot at in cold blood, Wherever the bullet pierced his 34-year-old body, his blood cries out to me. Just as Cain tried to cover up his murder, he was found out. Slim's murderer will be found out. What's done in the dark will be brought to the light. So the question remains, who is Slim's killer? Slim was potentially dealing with some massive players in the illegal liquor game, involved enough to put a high price on his head, or so I believe. I mean, why else would someone feel the need to murder a father of three? Slim had to be involved on more than just the local level. Maybe he got in the way of someone else's involvement. Or maybe whoever killed him did so to get him out of the way. During the third interview with my granny, she waited until I had stopped the recording and put away my equipment to tell me something. I've come to see she always waits to divulge the real top secret information until the recording stops. So I put my equipment away and notice she's still going on about Slim. Then suddenly, she drops a name. She drops the name. The person she had always heard who had possibly snuffed out Slim I've been apprehensive thus far to release the name, considering this is all speculation. 
I also wanted to put in my own personal research before I released anything because the information has to be vetted. It has to be tried and tested. In this episode, I'm finally ready to release both the name told to me and my own personal lead suspect in my investigation. Yes, those are two different names. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. So my granny gave me the name of... Hillard Malloy. I really couldn't believe it. Was this the guy who murdered Slim and destroyed a family? A quick Google search revealed his obituary. Hillard Lowry Malloy, 93, of McMinnville, passed away Thursday, March 30th, 2000, at the NHC Healthcare in McMinnville. Malloy was born June 13th, 1906, in Van Buren County, the son of James Logan Malloy and Elfleda Lowry. He retired as the owner of Malloy's Laundry. He was a member of the Church of Christ at Central. Taken from the Van Buren County Obituary. My dad in episode three gave the same name, Malloy, but connected him only with the confiscation of Slim's vehicles. He said Hillard was the man who drove Slim's taxi around town, who paraded said taxi like a trophy. But that was a trophy won unfairly. According to the Southern Standard, a local paper, Hillard was the owner of Malloy's Laundry during the 1930s. Hillard and his brother T.B. purchased a second location in Sparta, his obituary stated he retired as the owner of Malloy's Laundry. After doing some research into Hillard, I started to believe he wasn't involved at all. I mean, how could a man who served a community to keep your clothes clean be involved in Slim's unlawful death? And even if he'd driven the car around town, who gave him the key? And just as I was about to write off Hillard Malloy, I discovered something. Or someone, to be exact. His father was James Logan Malloy. A key to this locked-up mystery. So who was James Logan Malloy? He was sheriff of Warren County from 1926 to 1928. One day, a prominent banker walked up to J. Logan and complimented him on doing a good job for the county. J. Logan thanked him and said, By the way, give me that whiskey bottle you have in your pocket. The man laughed and gave it to him. These stories are from the Prohibition era and the Roaring Twenties. J. Logan was one of the fearless group of men known as the Federal Prohibition Agents, now known as Alcohol Tax Unit Agents. The moonshiners commonly referred to these men as revenueers. J. Logan worked with agents Scruggs, Lowry, Frank Maxwell, and Special Agent S.T. Brown. His sons, H.S., T.B., Hillard, 
Lynn, Laddie, and Edward worked with him as they got old enough. The boys were young enough to be good runners and caught many moonshiners when they ran away from their woods. The Heritage of Warren County by James Dillon. Breaking up moonshiners looked to be a family affair. Everyone took part in the Internal Revenue Service's bidding, or at least it looked that way. But to take a really deep dive into this profession, we will talk with Dan Pierce, professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Asheville, and the author of Tar Heel Lightning, How Secret Steals and Fast Cars Made North Carolina the Moonshine Capital of the World. To get started, I asked him how the alcohol tax unit began. Well, it, it started uh, when the excise tax, uh, the federal excise tax, went into effect, which was um, 1862 uh, during the Civil War. The federal excise tax is a legislated tax on specific goods or services at purchase, such as fuel, tobacco, and alcohol. It was a wartime measure that's, uh, you know, one of those things that, uh, you know, once they pass something, it never goes away. So that's what created it. As because it's a tax, the Treasury Department enforces it. And so the entity has gone by a number of names over the years, but you know, during the 20s and 30s, uh, probably teens, 20s and 30s, it was the alcohol tax unit is what they uh, they call it. So, yeah, so that was the chief enforcement arm for uh, most people equate uh, moonshine and moonshining with prohibition, but it was illegal uh, long before uh, prohibition came around. Uh, again, starting in uh, 1862, although that didn't apply to much of the South because of the Civil War, but once the war's over with, the federal government started enforcing this um, this tax. And so that's the illegality that has been a constant uh, ever since 1862 is the fact that uh, folks are making liquor without paying the federal excise tax. Just to clarify, I asked Dan if the alcohol tax unit and the ATF are the same entity. That's the same thing, yeah. yeah. And I think okay. they've added explosives to that now as well. Yeah, so. probably, probably so. <laughs> yeah. I know I've mentioned the moral issue of alcohol and the taxation. So I asked Dan if the moral issue had anything to do with the beginnings of the ATU. Oh, it's strictly money. I mean, the, you know, uh, from the start, of course, it was a wartime measure to help finance the Civil War. And uh, but it quickly became one of the most lucrative sources of income for the federal government. Plus, uh, it, it was there were two things at work here uh, in the region. One is was the money that this provided to the federal government in an era when they they didn't have a lot of sources of uh, of income. Tariffs and the sale sale of uh, federal land were about it uh, at this time, some customs duties and things like that, but there wasn't a lot of income for the federal government uh, until the 20th century when, you know, income tax and things like that came along. Take a minute to listen to a word from our sponsors. We here at the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast listen to other podcasts, and we wanted to share about one we currently are listening to. 
It's called Crime Light, a true crime podcast dedicated to shining light on missing person cases and unsolved murders. Lauren and Jasmine are working with the survivors of the victims to shed light on what happened to them. Their episodes are very engaging and heartbreaking at times. Be sure to tune in on any podcast streaming service. Now back to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast. But uh, this excise tax provided a, a, a huge proportion uh, the, uh, on liquor, provided a huge proportion of the revenue of the federal government. So they didn't want to give that up. It's, it, it's kind of interesting because uh, the other thing that it did was that uh, enforcement officials were political appointees. This was before the civil, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, and so this was a way for uh, whoever was in charge in Washington and for most of the um, late 19th and early 20th centuries, that was a Republican Party. You know, these were patronage jobs. And so, you know, it was a way of uh, 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 paying off your uh, political uh, supporters. Uh, and oh. so that, that was an important thing in places like Tennessee, um, you know, which, you know, for much of that, you had Democrats in charge of the state government, but, uh, but the Republicans, you know, were able to hold on to um, a base of power by having the appointment of uh, uh, collectors and uh, marshals who were enforcing the, the tax law. So it kind of played, played um, both ways there. And there was always a political component to it. So there wasn't really a moral thing in terms of, of trying, you know, at least from the federal government, in terms of trying to cut back on drinking. Um, that came with the prohibition thing, you know. But, uh, mm -hmm. but, it, but it, again, it very quickly became something that the federal government was uh, – well, very protective of. I mean, and they're, yeah. they're to this day. I mean, they are very protective of that uh, income from the liquor tax because it's still significant uh, amount of revenue for the government. I've looked over countless articles from the Tennessean to the Southern Standard involving the busting up of moonshine stills. I've also taken notice of the amount of force that is used in the confiscation of a still and the apprehension of an offender. I'm perplexed at how an employee from the branch of the Internal Revenue Service would be using such force. Yeah, there's uh, there are a lot of misconceptions because the uh, you know the movie stories and um, and the, you know stuff in the popular media you know always highlight these these uh, shootouts between revenue agents and moonshiners and stuff like that. But, you know, in reality, they were pretty rare. And so the main method of enforcement was to, um, you know, try and try and find stills. Uh, and the ultimate goal was to catch people at the still, because unless you caught people in the act, I mean, if you caught, you know, if you bust, uh, if you found a still on somebody's property, um, you still couldn't prove that it was, that they were the ones making the liquor. And so you had right. to catch people at the still. And so that was, that was, that was the goal. Most of the time, um, I mean, that was really hard to do, uh, because they had, 
you know, lookouts uh, and, uh, you know, people watching and, and to actually catch somebody in the act was very difficult. So they, they busted, it was kind of a standard joke um, that uh, they busted up a lot of stills, but they didn't arrest a lot of people. And so, so, or, or as they put it, they would cut down a still or they would uh, uh, chop it up or they had a thing called a devil that they would just knock, all these holes in the uh, in the copper boiler and whatever they could uh, they got a hold of, uh, and then later they would use stuff like dynamite and blow them up and uh, and things like that. But they didn't catch people very often. When they did catch people, uh, and 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 probably the the tactic that caused the most violence in there were the use of informants and. Um, that was when things got a little hairy uh, with those. And a lot of the violence, there were, you know, uh, I actually read something the other day. It said it, it said something about these moonshiners shooting at, uh, at uh, revenue agents, but they, uh, but they were always high with their aim, you know. And okay. so for the most part, they weren't trying to, trying to kill people. They were mainly just trying to scare them off and, uh, so there was a lot of that. Again, I mean, it happened, and there were revenue agents that were uh, uh, that were killed, but uh, but it was a pretty rare thing. And actually, you know, there was kind of a code uh, there about how this worked—the relationship between moonshiners and revenue agents—that if you uh, that folks played by the rules basically, um, and that uh, if you got caught, uh, you know, you you know, basically, you know, if they if they had you, if you weren't able to run and they had you, then you kind of gave up peaceably. And they would even in many cases say, OK, I got you. And uh, uh, and um, you need to show up in court on such and such, such, such a date and let go. And so there were there were a lot of there are all kinds of stories about the relationships between uh, moonshiners, you know, people getting out of right. federal prison and. You know, and showing up at the um, at the ATU office, and you know, getting money so they could get home. You know, and things right. like that. You know, or 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 uh, you know, ATU a- agent stopping by the house and having dinner with the family. You know, stuff like that. So that was as common, if not more so, than the than that kind of uh, notion of uh, the shootouts and the car chases and. Uh, and uh, uh, things like that. So, so it's you know. But again, that it makes a much better movie if you got shootouts right. or chases, right? And so, but uh, that was that was those happened for sure. But they were not the norm in terms of the relationship. As I'm talking with Dan, I start to get the feeling that most of the agents of the ATU had more of a relationship like that of Otis Campbell and Andy Griffith. From the Andy Griffith Show, Otis was the town liquor enthusiast on the TV sitcom. I believe Moonshine was his favorite. He would turn himself in every night to Andy Griffith and Barney Fife. The jail cell would be open for Otis to just stumble right on in and put himself in custody. Of course, free to leave the next morning. This seems to be the common relationship between a shiner and the ATU agent, but this was not always the case. 
Yeah, and it's just like anything else. I mean, there were people that were, you know, agents who were gun ho and uh and you know, I mean, you know, and 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 got carried away, but again, that that wasn't the norm. Um Oh, when that happened, you know, and, it, and, 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 uh, you know, most of the agents didn't like that kind of thing, you know, because you start shooting it and you start shooting at people, they're going to shoot back. Yeah. <laughs> Especially during and, that time. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. particularly when you look at what the penalties were, um, you know, for a first offense, it was generally like a year and a day, uh, you know, you're going to kill somebody over that, you know? And, yeah. Uh, and again, the likelihood of you getting caught is pretty, pretty low. Um, yeah. and, and, and again, if you do get caught, it's, you know, it's not that long. And for a lot of these people, it was kind of a better deal to go off to the, um, to the federal pen for a year. <laughs> or, and yeah. actually you could, you'd usually get off about 11 months, you know, on good behavior. Speaking with Dan, I got a feeling that I definitely wasn't dealing with the normal ATU agent. I had to do something. I had to find out more than just what was in the local history books. I wanted the real stories. The ones not so publicized. After learning what I had about J. Logan Malloy, I decided to take action. I contacted the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, they told me to send an email to the Freedom of Information Act, which led me to the following email from Tab Lewis from the National Archives and Records Administration. The following is an excerpt from that email. March 5th, 2020. Bran, thanks for the message. The records do not include separate personnel files. If Malloy has a personnel file... It is in the custody of National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. I searched the card index to names of persons in General Department Files 1917 to 1930 and the General Index 1928 to 1951 in records of the Justice Department, Record Group 60, for reference to Merritt and James Logan Malloy. Neither index includes any reference to Merritt but the general index includes a reference to J. Logan Malloy in relation to the homicide of Jesse Harris, file 2370-134, in the liquor violations file. I hope this information is assistance to you in your research. Tab Lewis. Next week, we will go into an in-depth review of this declassified federal document concerning the murder of Jesse Harris at the hands of of the alcohol tax agent, James Logan Malloy. I spoke with my granny the other day, and she told me that if my pa dude was still alive today, he would be amazed at what I've found. She said he also would be so proud. So this goes out to whoever killed my great-grandfather Slim. I'm getting closer. I'm uncovering more and more each day. Even though everyone involved may be dead, the culprit will be known. Because whatever is done in the dark will be brought to the light. Thank you for listening to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem Podcast. 
If you have any information, please contact us at moonshinemurderandmayhem at gmail.com or message us on the Facebook group. <laughs>